Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Realm presents Bullet Catcher, Season 1, Episode 8. One. Cloak shoves me into a buggy and gets behind the wheel. He keeps his gun trained on me the whole ride. We pull over in front of a large building near the center of town, and Cloak tugs me out of the buggy. People on the street stop what they're doing to stare as he shoves me through the doors and inside. My cheeks are hot, not from fear, but from embarrassment. He pushes me through the lobby, then into the elevator. He keeps the gun dug into my side until we get to the right floor and into an open office. Nico is inside with his boots up on his desk, reading a paper. When he sees us, he stands with a jolt. What the hell's going on here? Carter snooping around the factory. Which factory? His voice drops. The factory. Cloak still has me by the arm. I feel safer in front of Nico, so I shake away his hand. What the hell? I say, rubbing my arm. I hope he wasn't too rough with you, Nico says. But his words are not totally sympathetic. Cloak can be a bit single-minded. That factory is a restricted area. It just looked like pipes to me. Why all the secrecy? Nico motions to Cloak to close the door. He does. Nico comes out from around his desk and sits on the edge in front of me. You've seen what water can do, Emma. It can take a dust bowl like Las Pistolas and turn it into a thriving city. That's a lot of power. And there are certain gangs and people who would prefer the gunslingers not to have that power. So the factory if people knew what was made there, would be a target. We'll have to increase security, Cloak says. More guards will just raise more attention. The goal is to keep it a secret. Who told you about it, sis? No one. He cocks his head and makes a yeah right face. It's no big deal. 
I just want to make sure whoever told you won't tell anyone else. I need to look after the whole city. I chew my lip, thinking it over. Please, sis, it's important. Her name is Hartwright, I say, but I've no idea if it was the right thing to do. That old crow has a big mouth, Cloak says. Nico nods and takes a seat behind his desk. You wouldn't know it to look at her, he says. But Hartwright was once a great gunslinger. Next time you see her, ask her to roll up her sleeves. She has bullet catcher handprints up both arms, all the way to her shoulders and across her back. I think of the old woman I met that morning in the saloon, the one who invited me over to swap stories. The first person who seemed genuinely friendly to me, not scared of me or of my brother if they crossed me, just kind. To look into her eyes, you'd never think her capable of hurting a fly. But if Nico is telling the truth, her gun wasn't always just a paperweight. Hey, Nico says, don't look so glum. Everything is okay. I forgive you. This makes me angry. There are children working on the factory floor. Nico shifts in his seat. Cloak says, it's better they are working than on the street. Nico, don't you remember how the brothers and sisters lined us up for the factory owners? How it felt when they went down the line examining our fingers like the hides of cattle. Cloak is about to say something, but Nico raises his hand and Cloak shuts his mouth. What I've learned since then is that if we don't provide shelter and protection for children like the ones we used to be, then no one else will. Do you think me heartless? Who are they, the children? They're children we've taken in as we travel the Southland, negotiating water with the townsfolk. They all make a wage. They have a roof and food. They're far better off here than where we found them. It's still not right. Kids that age, they should be in school. Nico stares at me, considering. Maybe you're right, he says. Then he stands. I get that you're concerned, and I promise to tell you everything soon. In fact, we're planning on riding out to another town to talk to them about water in the next couple days. Why don't you come with us? Then you'll know everything. No secrets. I nod. Okay. Cloak opens the door, a signal that it's time for me to go. Nico walks me into the hall. Give my regards to Hartwright, he says. Oh, and when you see her, you should ask her about Dad. What do you mean? If you'd read Dad's journal, you'd know they used to ride together. Back in my rooms, I make a beeline for the bedroom and find the journal where I left it under the pillow. Night is falling, but the apartment fills with electric light at the flip of a switch. I sit in a reading chair in the library, take a deep breath, and open the journal to the front page. Volvo, Saturday. My father seems never to have written the date, just where he was and the day. I told Dad I wanted to leave Polvo. He said that was good, but first I'd need a trade or I'd never make it out there on my own. I've gone to work at his shop to learn to be a tinker and mechanic. 
I look up Polvo in the atlas in the library. It's a dot of a town, not so far from the border between the Northland and South. In an old book, I discover a small entry on Polvo. At one time, it was modestly famous for its market, where merchants from the North came to barter with Southerners. This was all before the gunslingers, a time when bullet catchers were common. Most bullet catchers worked as private security for banks or wealthy families, but some were mercenaries and outlaws. In my father's time, it was not unheard of for a single talented bullet catcher to ride into town and leave with whatever they wanted. Women, men, all the money in the town's bank vault, casks of snakebite. Dad writes about the bullet catchers. One of them knocked over the general store the other day, took everything and roughed up the shopkeeper. They'll be closed until his leg heals and he can stand behind the register again. How do you stop someone who can't be shot? But Polvo was a large town, a city, really, with huge tenement blocks, a market larger than most towns, and enough water that everyone could take a bath every day without worrying that there wouldn't be enough to drink. It was too big for one person to cause too many problems, even if that one person was a bullet catcher. I flip hurriedly through the journal. He recorded the smallest things, the way his father looked when he was disappointed in him, the flies that gathered in dense clouds over the meat market when the day grew hot, and every single girl who caught his eye. The writing is cramped and the letters run into each other to make room for everything. Polvo, Tuesday. A bullet catcher called Andanza came into the store today. She needed a timepiece fixed. I'd been hearing stories of her for days. She's been causing no end of trouble. I heard that she went to the bank and walked out with two bags of silver. In one saloon, she drank and caroused all night, and when the keeper tried to give her a bill, she stuck a gun under his nose and dared him to insist. Lawmen came to arrest her, and there was a shootout, but they didn't get her. And today, she came into Dad's shop. I start flipping quickly through the pages. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Then another few pages. Maybe a week has passed, maybe a few days more. Polvo. Thursday. He couldn't fix the timepiece. She killed him. My father is dead. But the entry ends there. The rest of the page is blank, and when I turn it over, he's not even in Polvo anymore. I close the journal. Even though it's incomplete, I've read stories like my father's before. I've seen it play out a hundred times in Dimitri's. It always starts with an argument. Heated words, then a gun. Then someone's dead. The next morning, I head to the saloon early. I'm the first one there besides the bartender and his wife, starting to warm things up in the kitchen. Good morning, Miss Moreno. He greets me with a big show. You liked breakfast so much that you're back again? I'm not hungry, I tell him. Just water. That's it? That's it. It's not long before the old gunslingers mosey in, looking all the worse for wear in the early hour. But Hartwright isn't with them. 
She's at home, one of them tells me, taking it easy this morning. They give me the address and outside I hail a buggy. When I tell the driver where I want to go, he turns around in his seat and says, You sure? Hartwright lives on the edge of Las Pistolas. It's a far shot from the saloon and makes me wonder how and why she goes so far for a drink. Where Hartwright lives, the buildings are small and the road's craggy and broken. The buggy struggles over small ditches on its way there. The houses are straw and adobe. It's not unlike sand or Los Casadores. It's poor, to be sure, but in the shadow of the rest of Las Pistolas, it seems destitute. Hartwright's house is a small bronze adobe place with a front porch that looks recently swept and no glass in the windows. It's only when the driver tells me what I owe that I realize I have no money. That's fine, he says. Just put in a good word for me with your brother. I pull open the screen and knock on the door. From inside, I hear the sound of feet shuffling. The door creaks open and Hartwright peeks out. When she sees it's me, she opens it all the way and lets me in. The inside of her house is one small room. A hot plate sits beside a basin, half filled with well water. There's a straw bed, a single chair, a couple books in a stack on the floor. And that's it. It's bare, but clean. Hartwright's eye is black and swollen closed, and her bottom lip has been split and sewn up. She catches me staring and waves away my concern with her hand. Is that... Did Cloak do that? First guess, she says. I shrink against the door. It's my fault, I told them. Figured as much. I'm sorry. Good. Then you are forgiven. You can't so easily. That, youngin, is up to me. She sits in her chair and takes a second to get comfortable. So why have you dragged yourself all the way to the poor side of town to see little old me? From my pocket, I produce the journal. It's my father's. I see. Nico says you used to ride with him. Does that mean that he was a gunslinger? Yes, and a sharp one at that. But when I first met him, he was just another angry kid who wanted revenge. I was passing through Polvo on my way somewhere else. He asked if he could join up with me. Told me he couldn't live in the place where his father was murdered. That he wanted to open his own shop in another town. And I guess I understood all that. It wasn't until some time later that I realized he never intended to go into any kind of business. He was looking for Andanza. I like a story that will take me to extremes. And nothing says extreme quite like The Last City, a new Wondery podcast available now. Set in 2072, the city of Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. 
which, given its promise of being a miraculous green haven in a climate-ravaged world, shouldn't be too hard to sell, but things are not always as perfect and shiny as we'd like to believe. When she stumbles upon a dark secret that could lead to the downfall of Pura's existence if revealed, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Two. Emma, wake up! Nico calls from the elevator. Ten more minutes. Now, he says, and be quick about it. He comes into my room and throws open the curtains. It's an important day. I bury my head in my pillow, blocking out the late morning light. What are you talking about? Today I show you everything. About the water. About how we're helping the Southland, he says, coming over and putting a knee on the bed. And it's the first time we get to ride together. Really? I promised, didn't I? All right, I'm up. Five minutes, he calls over his shoulder as he leaves. I'm left alone in the room. The light coming through the windows is white hot. The ride will be blistering. Exciting day, Cloak says, deadpanning. My horse is waiting for me, already saddled. I run my hand along her neck and I swing up onto the saddle. It takes all my energy not to pull Cloak from his saddle and punch him in the face for what he did to Heartright. It is exciting, Nico says, riding up, all smiles and energy. Today, you learn what it really means to be a gunslinger. We are peacekeepers, the people who make things fair and orderly in the Southland. Like lawmen, I say. That's part of it, sure, Nico says. But lawmen are loved, thanked, well paid. Don't expect any thanks. The things we have to do are often unpopular but they're for the greater good. So where are we off to? Cloak kicks his horse and shoots off. A posse of gunslingers follows after him. Nico watches him go. He says, That place I told you about, remember? Nowhere special. He winks, clicks his tongue, and his horse gallops away. I lean over my horse's neck, pet her mane, and whisper, Let's go. And she does. 
That night in the bruise, when the bullet catcher and I stole her to make our escape, seems so far away. I've been thinking of names for her, but nothing comes to mind. And I guess I've never felt that she really belonged to me. Maybe... no name? I look down at her. Yes, that seems to fit just fine. I fall into pace alongside my brother. He turns and smiles at me before hunkering low on his saddle, urging his horse on faster. I speak into no name's ear. Faster, girl. She whinnies and chases Nico's dust trail. I let my eyes close, enjoying the wind on my face, unafraid of going fast. We pass a few days beneath the desert sun, but it's one of the easiest journeys of my life. No name is happy to gallop unendingly. There's plenty of water, and it turns out Cloak can cook. All I have to do is ride. But out here, there is little in the long, listless hours to distract me from thinking about the bullet catcher. Often, while riding, I think I see him, riding with us at a distance, a speck on the horizon. But then I blink, and he's gone. No skinny figure on the horizon. No dust kicked up by a horse's hooves. But I can feel him. I can feel him watching. Nowhere special turns out to be a small town called Bad Pines. When I see it, I understand that Nico wasn't merely being glib when he called it Nowhere Special. There is one potholed street lined by a row of ramshackle buildings. At the end of the street sits a bent church, the steeple fallen through the roof. If there were ever pine trees, they died long ago. The people of Bad Pines, old men and women, empty into the street when we approach. Their faces and hair are sand-colored and ashen, as though they lived their lives in a windstorm. As we approach, we are met with the sound of galloping horses, hundreds of them. But there are no horses in sight. And then I realize the sound isn't horses at all, but rushing water. It seems miraculous, given everything else about Bad Pines, but the town sits on the banks of a gushing river that emerges from a natural spring pumping endlessly from beneath barren rock. The water roars for no more than 50 yards before disappearing again beneath the earth. The river is like a blue stitch disappearing beneath the cloth. I imagine the water plunging into the earth, an endless, lightless waterfall. The sound is beautiful and deafening. Still on his horse, Nico leans toward me and says, We've been trying to set up some sort of peaceable trade agreement with these old goats for months now. But so far, nothing. You mean this isn't where the water is coming from? Not yet. So there are more places like this? A few, yes. In the desert, the water likes to hide, but it pops out of the ground here and there. If they don't want to trade, they don't want to trade. Cloak looks at me like he's never heard anything so naive. They have more than they need, Nico says. Everyone has to pull the rope together. They don't use the water to farm. They don't irrigate. 
Without it, the earth is barren and the soil is too arid to till. They certainly don't use it for bathing, Cloak says. So if they won't negotiate, what are we doing here? We'll have to make them trade, Miko says. But we still give them fair terms. We aren't monsters. Look at how they live. This is for their own good. A wrinkled old man steps forward and says, We've told you, gunslinger. We won't make no deal. He's tall and spindly. His skin and bones don't fill out his clothes. He wears a coat with missing buttons and threadbare lapels that might have one day been fashionable. He looks like a salesman, lost for years in the desert. The rest of Bad Pines gathers behind him, their withered faces making their eyes big and pathetic. Mayor Jezik, Nico says, impatiently trotting over to meet him. Our offer is more than fair. We have people who can make the soil fit for farming. Think of all the good you could do with the money, and it never hurts to have us on your side. We have no need for your fancy farming or money, Jezik says. We have no need for fancy clothes or machines. We have water and food enough. We can offer protection. Protection? Now the old man seems to be gathering steam. He screws his face into a look of anger. This gunslinger is a bullet catcher town. Bullet catchers founded this place. My father and brother were bullet catchers. This place will always be a home for bullet catchers. Miko dismounts. He walks slowly up to Jezik, looking at his feet the whole time. He stops when his boots nearly touch the old man's. Then he looks up and stares him in the eye, not saying anything for a time. Jezik is a good foot taller than my brother, but he shrinks under his gaze. Maybe this place was a haven for bullet catchers. But the bullet catchers are dead, old man. Nico says it in a slow drawl that only amplifies his annoyance. So, how about it? The mayor spits in the dirt at Nico's feet. You best get on your horse and ride back to whatever damned place you came from. My people are old, but we can still defend ourselves need be. The old man unsheathes a knife from his belt and holds it up between them. The people of Bad Pines produce weapons from beneath their rags of clothing. Those without guns shoulder rusted pitchforks or shovels or scythes. Nico and Cloak exchange an amused look. I like you, Jezik, Nico says, turning back to the old man. Damn me, but I do. I can't help it. That's why I'm going to extend my offer. One more time. But mark my words, this is your last chance. Nico draws his gun and taps it against his thigh, a metronome keeping time. There's no reason we have to come to violence, friend. No deal, Jezik says. He swipes clumsily at Nico with the knife. Nico dodges away, but the blade gets him in the arm, above the elbow. Nico screeches in pain and points his gun at Jezik and fires. The old man falls to the ground. 
The desert swallows up the bang of the gun, and for a moment, everything is still and quiet. The click-click of Cloak pulling back the hammers of his guns breaks the silence. Nico turns quickly to him. Wait! He calls out. But it's too late. The air fills with gun blasts and smoke. The townsfolk don't even have time to raise their weapons. Cloak's guns chatter back and forth, then fall silent. The people of Bad Pines lie dead on the ground. Jezik writhes in the dirt, grasping the wound in his stomach. He turns to look behind him, and when he sees his people dead in the dust, he lets out a strangled sound from deep in his throat. Nico's face is white. He bends down on a knee, so he's face to face with the mayor, and says slowly, It didn't have to be like this. You could have saved them. I dismount and run to him. I'm not thinking. I must be in shock. But when I get there, I can see there's nothing I can do. The old man's head drops to the dirt. He gasps, and the light goes out of his eyes. Nico and Cloak huddle together away from me. I am frozen in place. My skin is cold and goose-pimpled. Who knows what they're talking about? Cloak and the other gunslingers begin to gather up the bodies, dragging their heels through the dirt, piling them together like dry tinder for a fire. Nico finally comes over to me, still standing beside Jezik's body. Better get out of the sun, Nico says. The back of your neck must be getting awful red. He smiles that same smile I've grown used to, but I'm suddenly afraid of him. When he reaches for me, I twist away, but he catches me. I turn to wood in his arms, not daring to move. Are you all right? He says with concern. I'm fine, I croak. For the first time in my life, I want to get away from him. He doesn't let go of me right away, maybe trying to figure out what's come over me, but finally he lowers me to the ground. Why don't you go down to the river and splash some water on your face? He walks back to Cloak, who's prying loose boards from the buildings, turning them to skeletons. They add the dry wood to the pile of bodies. I head down to the river. No Name follows at my side, bowing her head and nudging at my shoulder until I reach over and scratch her muzzle. The cold water reminds me of the bullet catcher's lake. And for the first time, I think that I went wrong, choosing Nico over him. By the river, I lie on my back under the branches of a wilted, sun-blasted willow, and No Name lies beside me. There's precious little shade and No Name takes up most of it, but the roaring water helps wash away any thoughts of the bullet catcher and Nico and the townsfolk of Bad Pines. Emma, Nico calls from up the bank. What? I answer without opening my eyes. Emma. His voice sounds strange, and I open my eyes. The bullet catcher stands before me. 
His face is tight with concern. It's you, I manage to say. He says, Be careful, Cub. They must not suspect you have a heart. The air is suddenly thick with smoke. It fills the air and makes it hard to see and breathe. Emma! The voice calls from up the bank. I startle awake. The bullet catcher's gone. Or maybe he was never there at all. Nico jogs down to the tree. The smoke is drifting down to the water, he says. Might want to move off. Bad for the soul to breathe the ash. Nico offers me his hand, and I let him pull me to my feet. He wraps his arm around my shoulders and leads me away from the smoke, drifting down over the water. The smell is thick and oily. I didn't mean for it to go this way, he says. But you have to know that this water is more valuable than a handful of lives. Don't you see? They were being selfish. They were the monsters here. Their water can help the thousands of people all around the Southland who are counting on me. It's just like the bullet catchers. They wanted the power all to themselves. They never wanted to share. His words make a certain amount of sense, I guess. I stare at the water and imagine throwing myself in. When it dives back into the earth, would it take me with it? Would it take me all the way to the rotten core of this world, all broken bones and pale, waterlogged flesh? I know it sounds cold, little sister, but you'll understand one day. Our people need the water. Our people? Life returns to me for a moment. And what about the people who aren't ours? Nico smiles and runs his fingers through my hair. Ash falls over my face and shoulders. Eventually, Emma, there will be no such thing, one way or another. Out of the corner of my eye, I see the slightest rustle in the bushes that manage to grow along the riverbank. Anyone else would think it a bird or a lizard, but I know better just by the sound of the rustling. Through the dense brush comes the glint of the sun off a drawn pistol. I don't think. I draw and half turn toward the sound. My finger taps the trigger. My palm slaps the hammer as it strikes again and again. Another second passes, followed by the sound of a body going limp and collapsing. Nico only turns once it's over. Cloak comes running down the slope to the river, gun drawn. Following our line of sight, he steps through the brush. He drags the body out onto the bank. The would-be assassin is bare-chested, his face and body cut by bush thorns. He has a baby face and a feathery mustache. If he's any older than me, he doesn't look it. The youngest boy in this village of old men. There are two bullet holes in the skinny target of his chest. Nico looks from the body to me. Good shooting, he says. I reckon you saved my life. I holster my gun before I drop it. I bury my hands in my pockets so Nico and Cloak won't see them shaking. Nico swallows. Was that your first? 
I don't say anything, which is as good as saying yes. You're white as a sheep. Why don't you get some rest in one of the houses? That'll be fine, I managed to say. Darkness creeps in at the corner of my vision. I feel lightheaded. My only thought is to get to a bed, out of sight of Nico and Cloak, before I pass out. I'm afraid of showing weakness, of showing my heart. As Nico leads me away, I turn and watch Cloak shoulder the dead weight of the body and carried up the bank after us. Nico takes me to one of the houses, nothing more than a shanty, and sits me down on a bed in a bare room. For all I know, it could be the bed of the boy I just killed. Nico kisses me on the forehead and brushes the hair from my face. Just rest, he says. You did good today. Then he leaves, and I'm alone in the mostly empty room. I draw one of my pistols, one of my father's pistols, and hold it in my palms. Already, the polish has scuffed. My reflection in the metal is that of a funhouse mirror. I run my thumb over my father's initials carved in the wood handle. The gun drops to the floor and lands with a dull thud, and I fall backward onto the bed. According to Hartwright, it was on a hot day a few years after she and Emiliano left Polvo. She was having a drink in the saloon of some one-horse town she couldn't remember the name of. Dad was keeping her company. The saloon was pretty empty. She said Emiliano must have felt her before he saw her. His back was to the door. The hinges squeaked and he sat up straight like an electric current had run through his body. He turned slowly and there she was, and Danza, like a dark cloud blowing in. They could hardly believe it. She ambled to the bar and ordered a drink. Emiliano stood and went to the bar alongside her. He said, you killed my father. And Danza laughed and said, I've killed a lot of people's fathers. What makes yours so special? Emiliano squeezed the handles of his gun so hard, Hartwright swore she heard the wood creak. I'm going to kill you. And Danza smiled and said, We'll see, gunslinger. We'll see. Out in the street, they counted out the paces and stared each other down. Hartwright stood aside. It was Emiliano's fight. But she said that she had already made up her mind to kill Andanza herself if it came to it. On three, Andanza called. Emiliano nodded, his fingers an inch from his guns. One, Andanza called. Hartwright's heart beat dull and slow, like it was pumping mercury. Two. Before Andanza could finish, Emiliano drew his pistol and fired. And Dancer raised her hand to catch the bullet. She swiped at the air and staggered forward with the momentum. She opened her hand and it was empty. She looked down. A red dot was developing around the smoking hole in her chest where Emiliano's bullet had pierced her. She looked up. 
Emiliano spun his gun and holstered it. And Danza took another step forward and fell. She was dead. Emiliano approached her slowly, in case she was playing possum. He nudged her onto her back with the toe of his boot, and her eyes were wide and empty. That was mighty unsporting, Hartwright said. She didn't deserve any better, said Emiliano. Hartwright said Andanza was the first person my father ever killed. He acted brave when it happened, but later that night, she heard him crying. With a gun in your hand, killing's the easy part. The hard part is everything that comes later. You're listening to Bullet Catcher Season 1 by Joaquin Lowe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Bullet Catcher is written by Joaquin Lowe, produced by Lydia Shama, and executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton, performed by Inez Del Castillo, audio produced, directed, and designed by Amanda Rose Smith, additional editing by Corey Barton, original theme composed by Hashem Asadolahi, with performances by Justin Morell and Josh Deutsch, cover art by Christine Barcelona.